Good morning. Hopefully you saw the email earlier this week, and uh, as you know, today we start a new sermon series for those Sundays that we will pause from the Gospel of Luke. And in this new sermon series, we want to focus on several doctrines that we believe are essential to Christian faithfulness, doctrines that are essential to the life and the worship of God's people, essential to Christian faithfulness. We are convinced, brothers and sisters, that being a convictional Christian and being a faithful church in our culture is becoming rapidly harder, and that following Jesus and the word of His truth will be increasingly more costly to us. And we believe as pastors that it is our responsibility before the living God to equip you, the congregation, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we are not without hope in the task, but rather we are confident. For we know that the winds of culture and all that is false will soon pass away, but the Word of God remains forever. And so in the year 2021, we want to be a church that is anchored in the truth of God's Word, so that as the Apostle Paul says, we may not be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Doctrine matters, brothers and sisters, because doctrine grounds us in the truth of the Word of God, and it is only grounded in convictional churches that will be able to stand firm when the waves of opposition rise to overwhelm us. The plan for this series is simple. Each sermon will focus on a specific doctrine in two parts, definition and application. So with each sermon, we are trying to answer two simple questions. What does this doctrine teach us, and what difference does it make in the life and worship of the church? This week and the next, we will focus on the doctrine of Scripture. The doctrine of Scripture. This morning, we will look at the doctrine of inspiration. And next week, we will look at the sufficiency of Scripture. And our text for both sermons will be 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please... Follow along as I read. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 through 17. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. Let's pray. Father, as we sang, I pray again that you will speak to us as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. 
We pray, Father, that you will teach us full obedience, that you will teach us holy reverence, and that you will teach us true humility, that we may walk according to your word. Father, I pray that you will use your word this morning to strengthen your people by faith, and that you will ground us and anchor us in the truth of your holy word. Please do this, Father, according to your great might and power through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we start with the doctrine of Scripture. And our first question is, why is the doctrine of Scripture important? Is Is it not enough to say that we believe in the spiritual truths contained in the Bible without having to define what Scripture is? Friends, the doctrine of Scripture matters because God is a communicating God. It is of the very essence of being God that He communicates who He is. You see, from eternity past, God has existed in triune communication. Before time was, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have shared in their mutual knowledge of one another. So as Francis Schaeffer said, God is there and He is not silent. In fact, He has never been silent. The doctrine of Scripture matters because it takes us to the center of the nature and the life of the triune God as the God who speaks. What God speaks and how He speaks reveal His glory. On a more practical level, the doctrine of Scripture matters because it encourages the church to faithfulness. It encourages the church to faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, in a truthless age, perhaps there is no more important truth than this. The winds of our secular age have parched the land and we find ourselves famished of truth. And with no truth to live by, all we are left with are the whims of our emotional preferences and the hollow associations of group identities. In other words, without consent to objective truth, whatever I feel is truth. And whatever we agree upon is the new norm. We live in a truthless Wasteland. And brothers and sisters, it is the call of local churches like ours to be gardens of truth in the midst of the famished land. Gardens that provide the nurturing soil for truth to flourish. Like Joseph, who fed the world in famine from the abundance of the storehouses in Egypt, we must cultivate and store up truth. So that when people come through those doors begging for food, we may have bread to give them. The doctrine of Scripture matters because the Scriptures are the soil from where all other truth grows. They are the storehouse of the church. So we begin this morning with a definition of the doctrine of of Scripture, and our text this morning gives us a good outline to work from. Look there in verse 16 again. Paul says, The Scriptures are breathed out by God 
and they are profitable. I believe here we have a doctrine of Scripture in two parts, the nature and the function of Scripture. Now, this morning we only have time to pay attention to the first of the two, that is the nature of Scripture. And for that, we will focus on the first part of verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. From this phrase, we will consider the nature of Scripture under three points of doctrine starting with the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture and related to inspiration, the doctrines of inerrancy and authority. So here's my attempt at a definition of the nature of Scripture with these three points of doctrine in mind. The Scriptures are the Word of God, truthful in every way, through which God's rule is present among us. The Scriptures are the Word of God, truthful in every way through which God's rule is present among us. So the goal is to look at each part of this definition under the three points of doctrine already mentioned. Inspiration, inerrancy, and authority. And we will end with a few points of application. So that's the goal. We begin then with Inspiration. Inspiration has to do with the origin of Scripture. Where do the Scriptures come from? Paul says in our text that they come from God. All Scripture is God-breathed. Their origin and therefore their nature is divine. It's divine. Now, to be sure, the Scriptures were written by human Author, so that we can speak of a dual or double authorship of Scripture, both human and divine. However, the Scriptures emphasize not the Scriptures' human authorship, but their divine origin. Take, for example, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-22, through 22, which is probably the best text to see the dual authorship of Scripture. Even in this passage, the emphasis is placed on divine origin. Peter writes, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter brings up human agency in prophecy to point out that the man who spoke did so through the acting of the Spirit. Peter's emphasis is on the Spirit as the one from whom the prophetic word of Scripture comes from. In other words, Peter addresses human agency to affirm the divine origin of the words spoken. So that we can say the Scripture is, in an ultimate sense, the product not of man, but of God. And in our text, as you can see, Paul also emphasizes the divine origin of Scripture when he says that they are breathed out by God. Paul pictures here the origin of Scripture in, the, in God's act of speaking. Where do the Scriptures come from? In the act of God speaking. So in the same way that God spoke creation into existence 
and breathe into man the breath of life, so also does he breathe out his written word, Paul says. Scripture is nothing less than the aspiration of divine words, the breath of the living God. The Scriptures come from the mouth of God, and so they are an extension of the presence of God. Not exhaustively or materially, but truly and substantially. The Scriptures make the connection between God's presence and His Word many times. But I'll just give you one example in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. There Moses says to Israel, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you? So you see the parallel of God's nearness in the first question and the giving of His law in the second question. So what made Israel different from all the surrounding nations was the fact that God was near to them in the giving of His law, His word. God's nearness to His people was His nearness in and through His words to them. God's words not only represent God's presence, but they are the means of His presence among His people. To make the point more clearly, think about this, brothers and sisters. Where do you find the two tablets that represent God's word to Israel in the Old Testament? Where where do you find the two tablets of the Ten Commandments? You find them in the one place where God dwells, inside the Ark of the Covenant in in the tabernacle, where the presence of God rests among the cherubim. So you see, whatever, whatever you find the Word of God, there you find Him. Whatever you find the Word of God, there you find Him. To open the Scriptures, this book, to open the Scriptures, is like being with God face to face, if we take Paul to his words. To open the Scriptures is like being with God face to face. To face his life-giving breath being breathed out onto us. So to summarize this first point, the doctrine of inspiration explains the process of how the divine word is mediated to us by human agency or human authors. God's Word comes to us in the words of man who wrote through the operation of the Spirit. What they wrote, God speaks. But the emphasis, again, is not in the process of how we got the Scriptures. The emphasis is on their divine origin and nature. Scripture is the Word of God, the vehicle of His presence among us vehicle of His presence among us. So that's the first point, the doctrine of inspiration. The second point in our definition of the nature of Scripture is the doctrine of inerrancy. In our first point, we dealt with the origin of Scripture. 
And now we look at the character of Scripture. The character of Scripture. What are the Scriptures like? Well, friends, they are true all the way in every way. The word inerrant means, probably as you know, without error. And the Scripture's inerrancy is a direct result of their divine inspiration. The origin of Scripture determines their character. So because Scripture comes from God, it means that whatever God is like, so also is His Word. This is why the psalmist can ascribe to Scripture the same qualities, qualities that are normally ascribed to God. We saw that with Psalm 19 that Rachel read for us. Also in Psalm 119, the rules of the Lord are righteous and upright, the psalmist says, and His commandments are faithful and true. You see, because the Lord is righteous, faithful, and true, so are His words. In fact, in verse 160 of Psalm 119, the psalmist summarizes the character of the words of God like this. He says, the sum of your word is truth. You see, whatever is true of God must be true of His word in their totality. God is perfectly faithful and true. In Him there is no error. And so the sum of His words is truth, the psalmist says. So the doctrine of inerrancy teaches us that since all Scripture, since all Scripture is breathed out by God, so all Scripture is without error. Not some Scripture, but all of it. All of it. The Word of God is true all the way, in every way. Now, inerrancy raises uh, an important question for us as we approach the Scriptures. The question is this, how do the Scriptures speak truth? How do they uh, speak the truth? Friends, the delusional man demands that God's Word conform to our modern preferences. But the fact is that we cannot force an ancient text to submit to the literary practices of our post-scientific age. To demand that the Scriptures conform to our preoccupations is silly. It is absurd. Rather, it is we who must humbly approach the Scriptures according to their rules of communication, not ours. And this means, friends, that the Scriptures can claim total truth, they can claim total truth, even in their use of unrefined grammar, non-chronological narrative, pre-scientific descriptions of natural phenomena, and imprecise language, such as the use of figures of speech, symbols, and round numbers. The idea that truth can only be conveyed with precise language is a modern myth. For example, when the weatherman says that the sun will rise at 5.45 a.m., he, he's not trying to trick you, right? We all know scientifically that the sun 
doesn't rise. I didn't do well in high school, so I don't know how the earth rotation and all that stuff works, but I know for sure that the sun doesn't rise. The fact is that we don't fault the weatherman for being imprecise. On the contrary, we understand him to be making a truthful claim. And we know that he will make good on his claim. You see, error doesn't arise from unrefined and imprecise grammar. As the theologian John Frame says, error arises from two sources, deceit and ignorance. Deceit and ignorance. Deceit is intentional error, lying. Ignorance may lead to unintentional error. But God does not lie, and He is ignorant of nothing. End quote. This is what we mean by the inerrancy of Scripture. All Scripture is true in every way, containing no intentional or unintentional error, making good on all its assertions of truth. God's word, brothers and sisters, is true because God is a truth-speaking God. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And I like how, again, John Frame concludes. He says, If there is any disagreement between God's words and our own ideas, His must prevail. And if we should be so arrogant as to judge what He says, He must prevail in that judgment. God's judgment and His word must prevail. So all Scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore all Scripture must be true all the way, in every way, and it's in it, in, in, wow, in all its claims of truth. God is not ignorant, nor is he a liar, brothers and sisters. And so his word is totally true. Our third and final point in our definition of the nature of the word of God is the doctrine of authority. So inspiration, inerrancy, and now Scripture's authority. Authority has to do with the inherent function of Scripture. What do the Scriptures do? How do they operate as the Word of God? Like inerrancy, authority is also a result of the inspiration of Scripture. Scripture is authoritative because it is the word of the authoritative God. In fact, the authority of Scripture is the authority of God exercised in and through His Word. So to honor God's authority, we must honor God's Word. If you think about it, God's Word functions in the same way that my words function in my home. I have a God-given authority over the lives of my children for their own good. Sometimes I exercise my authority through physical means, like restraining one of my kids when I see them running out into the street and 
a car is coming. I restrain them and I use my authority in a physical way. But the majority of the time, the majority of the time, my authority in the home is exercised not through physical means, but through language, through my words. I use words to instruct my children. I make promises to them. I give them commands. And I warn them of impending dangers. So when I say to, to Calvin or Owen, buddy, please pick up your Legos so your sister doesn't step on them, I am exercising my authority in a very real way through the words that I speak. I am giving my son a command frame with instructions. And so there is no distinction between my authority as their father and my words to them. They know that to dishonor my words is to dishonor me. To not pick up the Legos is to undermine my authority. And so it is with God, friends. The authority of God comes to us in a real and present way in and through His Word. His authority is exercised through His instructions and promises and warnings and commands. God tells us what to believe and what to do. And His authority is also exercised in other forms of language, such as poetry and stories and parables and symbolisms that shape and direct our emotions, preoccupations, and attitudes. You see, the authority of God comes to us in and through His words in all of its parts. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore all Scripture is authoritative. The narrative sections, the poetry sections, the parables, all of it. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore all Scripture is authoritative. And that is why, brothers and sisters, we make it our regular practice here in our church to preach through entire books of the Bible, as Jeff is doing from the Gospel of Luke right now. We preach from both the Old and the New Testaments, and we preach from all the genres of Scripture. Jeff just finished a four-part series on the Apocalypse, the Revelation of John. Because in order to submit to the authority of God, we must know and submit to the whole counsel of His Word. That's why we have that practice in our preaching. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable, Paul says. Again, we will focus on the second part of verse 16 next week. But for now, notice what the Scriptures are profitable for. They're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And friends, all these things are functions of one or something with authority. The Scriptures are able to do all these things because they are the exercise of God's present rule over us. This is how God leads and reigns over His people through the divine authority conveyed in His Word. All Scripture is God-breathed. Their origin is divine, their character is true, and their inherent function is authoritative. The Scriptures are the Word of God, truthful in every way, 
through which God's rule is present among us. So that's our definition of the nature of Scripture. So how can we apply all this? To be sure, we could come up with a very long and detailed list. And again, if you have been at Midtown for a while, hopefully you can see that we do strive to be a word-driven church. That is a church that submits to Scripture in every aspect of our worship and life together. But for now, I would like to leave you with three short points of application. First, the nature of Scripture encourages us to give ourselves to the study and doing of God's Word. If God's nearness to His people is His nearness through His Word, then to give ourselves to the Word is to give ourselves to the God who speaks. So if you want to know God, you must know Him in His Word. The practice of regularly taking in the Word of God is a spiritual discipline, as it is done in the presence of God. To read what the inspired authors wrote is to hear the voice of the living God, as the Spirit illumines our minds and hearts to understand and to believe the Scriptures. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore, the words of Scripture are the words of life. So give yourself to His Word, brothers and sisters. Give yourself to His Word in the year 2021. Take up the Scriptures and treasure God's nearness to you in His Word. Second, the nature of God's Word helps us to walk by faith in the Gospel. The nature of God's Word helps us to walk by faith in the gospel. The doctrines of inspiration, inerrancy, and authority are an anchor for our souls in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about it, friends. If all scripture were not inspired, we wouldn't have a divine testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, but only the testimony of men. And without God's testimony, the person and death and resurrection of Christ will be meaningless, having no divine sanction and therefore of no redemptive value for us. Furthermore, if all Scripture were not inerrant, there will be room for error in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Friends, the Christian faith is based on both historical and theological facts that must be true in order for there to be any spiritual significance to them. And if we cannot be certain that the Scriptures speak truthfully in their totality, then we cannot be certain that they speak truthfully concerning Christ's work. And if all Scripture were not authoritative, then the church would be left to figure out what to believe and what to do on her own. If this were so, the people of God would have no direction and no ground of confidence in their confession. If the Scriptures were not inspired, inerrant, and authoritative, and I'm not trying to 
be facetious, but let's just go pack up and go home. We have no business doing what we're doing this morning. Third and finally, the nature of the Word of God gives us convictional courage. The nature of the Word of God gives us convictional courage. It gives us the courage, brothers and sisters, that we will need to contend for the faith and to stand up to the winds and waves of falsehood that threaten to overwhelm the church. We must be sober, friends. The testing of our faith is no longer in the far horizon of our lives. It is here, and it is here now. The question for us is not rhetorical anymore, but a pressing question that each one of us must answer. Will we remain faithful to the Word of Christ when our faith is put to the test? Will you remain faithful to the truth of God's Word even when it is costly? And it will cost some of us something. The doctrine of inerrancy teaches us that God is a God of truth. To speak anything else than truth is contrary to the very nature and character of God. And this means that the people of God ought to be a truth-speaking people. We are in fact commanded in Ephesians not to participate in unfruitful works of darkness, but rather to expose them as we speak the truth in love. In other words, we do not join the world in calling true what is false and calling false what is true. But to speak truth in our day, brothers and sisters, is, is trouble. It is anathema. Truth-telling is seen as hateful and oppressive and therefore dangerous to the progress of society. And if dangerous, truth-telling must be silenced. And if not silenced, it must be eliminated. So truth-telling, friends, will require an enormous amount of courage. Courage that is grounded in biblical convictions and anchored to the truth of God's authoritative word. As you heard a few weeks ago from this pulpit, perhaps our calling is not to advance the kingdom of God, but to hold the line, to hold the line, to contend for the faith that it may be passed on to the next generation unharmed. For the church is the army of the Lamb, after all, soldiers of Christ in truth arrayed. So may the Lord be gracious to us as we seek to live courageously by faith in the living Word of God. God is there, brothers and sisters, and He is not silent. Amen. And better yet, God is here speaking and sustaining us by His Word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that your word will not fall flat this morning, but that it will do something in our hearts. Father, perhaps my description of the nature of the word of God was not as highly exalted as 
your word is, but I do pray, Father, that you will somehow, Father, from the text this morning, will peel our eyes to see more clearly the nature of your word. I pray, Father, that you will strengthen your church, that you will give us courage to live according to your word and to proclaim your word for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and